If you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, whether paper or electronic, however you're carrying it, uh, we're in the book of 1 Peter, uh, the letter toward the back of the New Testament, as we're, uh, we're asking uh, God just to, to teach us about, about uh, living, uh, living His way in a world that oftentimes seems to be going uh, almost every other way except uh, His way. And, and just to uh, kind of the, to reset this a little bit as you're uh, uh, finding that, uh, Peter is, is is writing to some folks that are undergoing some some suffering uh, for their faith. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, quite yet widespread organized persecution, but certainly outbreaks of it along the way, and more is to come. And he says, in a world where where it's not easy, in a world where it's it's opposed, in a world where uh, to to live as a follower of Jesus Christ is not only uh, not rewarded, but it's actually a time even punished, how do you live? How do you live for God? And that's, that's part of what he's answering in these words that he wrote uh, to these uh, first century Christians. And yet, the, the information is still so incredibly relevant for us today. And this morning, we're going to focus on what Peter has to say in just four verses in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Four verses about uh, attitudes and the attitudes that we bring to the relationships of our life and the radical difference those attitudes uh, can make make uh, along the way. We'll call them conflict-reducing uh, attitudes. Uh, look, quick uh, quick uh, poll here. Uh, how many of you have ever visited Seattle? Any of you several? Okay, several Seattle folks there, right? Yeah. If you go to Seattle as a tourist, you know, there's certain things that you're going to look for, right? You're going to do the Space Needle. You probably want to see the Space Needle there. Uh, you maybe want to go and find the first, the original star. Starbucks uh, there in Seattle. That's another landmark. But what's also become a landmark, kind of a, a tourist area, is of all places a fish market, right? Some of you who've been there, you know this place, right? All right, Pike Place Fish Market. And what makes it a little distinctive, you think, a fish market, really? But there's like fish flying through the air, right? Some of you have been there. I mean, this is kind of part of their, 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 their way of operating. There, there's noise, there's energy, uh, you're crying out for fish, and they're flying through the air, and it's kind of a, an exciting place to be, so much so uh, that it actually became even the, the, the basis for a book, uh, a philosophy of, of, of business, a fish philosophy. Some of you maybe in uh, some of your uh, uh, training through the years in different environments have read the book Fish or maybe seen some of the training uh, film or video, that sort of thing along the way. But there was this whole, whole series of, of, of training developed out of this fish philosophy. And one of the core tenets of the fish philosophy was this. You can always choose your attitude. No matter what your work, so they put it this way, there's always a choice about the way you do your work, even if there's not a choice about the work itself. 
And you may think, well, working at a fish market, I mean, that, that maybe wasn't necessarily your dream job, right? I mean, it, it, it's smelly and you, it's messy and all of these things, and yet, and yet they're bringing this energy to it. They're bringing even this fun factor to it because you can't always choose everything about your work. You can't always choose everything about your life. You can't choose everything about the relationships of your life, but you can choose the attitude that you bring to those environments. John Maxwell, uh, leadership uh, author, speaker for a number of years, going to be one of the speakers at the Global Leadership Summit this year that we're simulcasting here in August, uh, wrote this years ago about attitude. It's the reflection of our true selves. Its roots are inward, but its fruit is outward. It's our best friend or our worst enemy. It's more honest and more consistent than our words. It's a future outlook based on past experiences. It draws people to us or repels them. It is never content until it is expressed. It is the librarian of our past. It's the speaker of our present. And it's the prophet of our future. It's our attitude. When we think about attitude in the context of everything that Peter's writing and about the relationships of our life, we know our attitude. Our attitude goes a long, long way in determining the quality of our relationships with people. Whether that's in a church environment or a work environment, whether it's a family environment or a social setting or a neighborhood setting or whatever it may be, the attitude that we bring, the attitude that we choose to bring goes a long, long way in determining the quality of our relationships with people. And because of that, in these short verses, Peter is writing to people who relationships are challenging. I mean, when there's pressure on, even if that pressure's from the outside, it, it creates tension in relationships on the inside, doesn't it? I mean, when there's pressure on your family, that it tests the, the, the quality of the relationships, even within your family. And in those moments of, of pressure and testing, it's even more important to be intentional about choosing our attitude. In chapter 3, in verse 8, Peter opens up, Finally, all of you have unity of mind. I like the NIV translation here. It says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Now, now I, what I know is that nobody would vote against living in harmony, right? I mean, regardless of your political persuasion or background or whatever, I mean, everybody's for harmony, at least in theory, right? But the, the, chance, the rub is, how do you live that out? How do you live that out, particularly under pressure? And to answer that, Peter here gives us six conflict-reducing attitudes. We're just going to walk through them as they're, they're kind of tucked away oftentimes in just one-word statements. Now, he talks about, finally, all of you have unity of mind, and then he begins to uh, unleash kind of this, this series of attitudes. And the first attitude is sympathy. Sympathy. 
Sympathy is at its root means to share the same feeling. To share the same feeling, it is, it is to, to, to enter in in such a way that I can begin to, to understand and, and sympathize, feel that feeling with you. When we find uh, the, the example of, of Christ being a huge in this, for we do not have, the author of Hebrew tells us, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That God models this for us. Christ models this. He just didn't sit aloof, but he entered in. He entered in. He could sympathize with our struggle, with our weaknesses, with the challenges of living life God's way in a world that seems to be bent on going every other way. He can identify with that struggle, and there is that sympathizing in that. James just uh, lays it out as he, he succinctly did in his letter. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, that, that's a prescription for living out sympathy. Uh, would it not make a radical difference in the relationships of our life if we were quick to hear? Many of us, we, we're, 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 we're just waiting for somebody to pause so we can start, Right? Uh, particularly if there's a little tension there, right? Just you, you hurry up, hurry up, just pause. Take a deep breath because I'm, I'm coming back at you. I'm coming back at you, right? Sympathy comes out of the other way. Sympathy says, let me be quick to hear. Let me be quick to hear. This involves at least a couple things. First of all, seeing someone else's situation from their perspective. We, we see it from our perspective. But sympathy says, I, I want to I enter into this enough that I'm going to at least begin to understand this from your perspective. Many years ago, Stephen Covey wrote the, the, the phenomenal best-selling book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I think it's still selling uh, across the world today. And one of those core habits was simply this. It's one that's always stu- stood out to me. Seek first to understand than to be understood. Seek first to understand than to be understood. Many of us are so anxious to be understood that we never take time to understand. Sympathy enters in and says, help me to understand. Help me to understand, to see from someone else's perspective. But it's also about sharing their emotions. And you may not, if you were in the exact same situation, you may not have the exact same emotions. But sympathy says, I I not only want to understand your perspective, but I want to at least begin to understand how this is impacting you emotionally, how this is hitting you, the feelings that are associated with this. And so I bring this attitude of sympathy to the equation, of sharing the feelings, beginning with seeing from their perspective. But there's a second attitude, sympathy, and these all are kind of connected and build one on another and are interrelated, we'll call commitment. Commitment. In the ESV, he talks about sympathy and brotherly love. Brotherly love. When Paul talked about brotherly love in the Romans, he put it in the context of devotion. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. 
That this brotherly love is a devotion. It's a, it's a commitment. That I am committed to you. I am committed to you as a person. I am committed to, to God's best in your life. And so I bring that to the relationship. I, I'm not so much about getting my way as I want to see God's best in my life. I want to see God's best in your life. And so there's this commitment that is fueled by this brotherly love. And it involves a loyalty, a loyalty, that I, I am going to be loyal to you. 1 Corinthians 13 is one of those passages, you know, those verses that kind of are that descriptor of love. And if you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's kind of the go-to wedding passage, right? Somewhere in the wedding ceremony, we're going to hear 1 Corinthians 13. And one of the descriptors in that kind of long list of describing love is love bears all things. Love bears all things. There is a loyalty. There is a stick to itness. There is, I'm going to hang in there when it's easy and when it's not. When the problems are huge and when everything's smooth sailing. When I like you and when I don't. There is this loyalty. Love bears all things. But this commitment also looks like acceptance. Acceptance. Romans, again, reminds us of the model of Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Aren't you glad that God didn't say, when you get your act together, come see me? When you finally deal with all your stuff, then I'll accept you. No. Some of us had somewhere in our heritage the the hymn, Just As I Am, right? Just as I am, without one plea, that thy blood was shed for me. Just as I am, not, not when I get my act together. But he came, he, he offered an acceptance to me just as I am. Now, some of you are getting anxious at this moment here, so let me make sure I'm, I'm clarifying. Acceptance is not the same as approval or agreement. Okay? And I know in our culture right now, there, there's this, this kind of back and forth that if you don't agree with me, if you don't approve of my choices, then you don't accept me. But those are, those are two different things. God extends to us an acceptance in Jesus Christ, but as you've heard me say so many times, while God loves you just the way you are, he loves you way too much to leave you that way, Right? And it doesn't mean in accepting us in Jesus Christ that he approves of every decision we make. Or he is in agreement with every choice that we make. In fact, is in love, he will discipline his children. There is an acceptance, but there is also God who is going to work to bring out his best in our lives. And that's the commitment that we bring to the relationships of our life. That there is an acceptance, even, even if I disagree with you, I can accept you as a person of value and worth, as one who was created in the image of God. 
And we can start from there. I think our society would be a whole lot better off if we could just live that out. And it looks as simple as let's stop attacking each other and let's start attacking the problem, right? I mean, did you ever think that we would get to the point? <laughs> and you're like, really? That when you watch the news, a good portion of the news is about who tweeted what about who? <laughs> Right? Are you kidding me? This is news? This is what we want to focus on? These personal attacks? And who's winning the PR battle? A commitment says, let's let's attack problems. Absolutely. But I'm not going to attack you. There's a loyalty. There's an acceptance that grows out of brotherly love, a commitment to you. There's sympathy, there's commitment, and there's compassion. That when I bring compassion, he talks about a tender heart, a tender heart. Compassion literally at its root means to suffer with passion. We talk about the passion of the Christ. Passion, the suffering of Christ come with, to suffer with someone. The opposite of compassion, think judgment. Judgment. That I, I judge you. I, 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 I tend to do this in a very creative way. I tend to judge myself based on my intentions. I tend to judge other people based on what I see or observe or hear about their actions, right? And very often when I, when I fall into judging others, I not only judge their, their actions, but I oftentimes ascribe motives behind those actions. And if I'm operating out of judgment instead of compassion, it's going to poison the relationships of my life. Now, I'm not saying no discernment. (laughs) The scripture is crystal clear on exercise discernment. But judgment, judgment is out of bounds. Compassion, this tender heartedness. And how do we express this compassion? Well, we could list tons of things for the rest of the day, but let's just lump it into two broad categories. How about by what we say? By what we say. Here's the guidelines Paul gave the Ephesians. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's a great starting point, isn't it? What if, what if I began to think about the words that I use, the words that I use in the relationships of my life, my family, my work, my social circles, my neighborhood, a church, whatever it would be. What if I began to kind of think about my words through this grid? Is it good for building up? Does it fit the occasion? Does it give grace to those who hear? that I begin to to operate. And that doesn't mean we don't tackle tough subjects. We do. But do I tackle it coming from a posture of judgment or from a posture of compassion? We communicate it by what we say and certainly by what we do. By what we do. John put it succinctly, little children, 
Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Have you ever been around somebody and they didn't even have to say anything, but you just felt judged? Hmm? I mean, you just, you felt judged. Maybe it was their body posture. Maybe it was what they didn't say. Maybe it was how they excluded you or the look they gave. And how good was your relationship with them? Not so great, huh? Judgment separates. Compassion connects. Compassion connects. And that, that doesn't mean, again, that we, we don't handle the tough stuff. We do. You speak the truth, but you do it in love. You can say sometimes the same thing, but say it coming from two different postures, and it sounds radically, radically different. Right? So there's this sympathy. There's commitment. There's compassion. And then he goes on to talk about humility. Humility, a tender heart and a humble mind. That, that I come, come at my relationship with, with this posture of humility. And we've talked about humility before in these terms. Humility is seeing myself as God sees me, no more and no less. Humility is not putting myself down. It's not denying the giftedness that God's entrusted to me. It's not uh, denying the opportunities that God's given to me or anything like that. But humility is to say, I want to see myself clearly. I want to see myself as God sees me, no more and no less. And when I begin to operate out of that, it it impacts the ways that I operate and relate to other people. Proverbs warns us, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Someone said it more succinctly this way, if you're not humble, you will stumble. (laughs) If you're not humble, you will stumble. Humility keeps us from stumbling. Pride sets us up for a fall. And again, the greatest relational example is throughout the New Testament is Jesus Christ. And Paul, writing in Philippians, talks about the attitude of of Christ Jesus, and he talks about the attitude that we should bring. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. So humility says, I'm not just going to come at this relationship with my interest, but I'm going to look out for your interest. I want to see what God wants to do in this, in our lives. And so I come with, with the posture of a learner. I come with that posture of a servant along the way. And humility shows up a lot of times in our language. And so let me, let me just give you four f- helpful phrases, all right? And these are things that probably your mom or dad or somebody taught you very, 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 very early in life. And yet, sometimes we get to portions in our life where we find it incredibly hard to say these words, right? Like, I was wrong. I was wrong. Pride won't say that, right? Pride will blame. Pride will accuse. But pride won't own. I was wrong. 
How about this one? I need your help. I need your help. You have giftedness that I don't have. You have strengths that I don't have. You have a perspective that I don't have. I need your help. Pride doesn't say that. Humility does. Can I just go ahead and insert right here? So, This is some huge marriage counsel right here. Right? Guys, gals, there's some of our spouses who can't remember the last time they heard I was wrong or I need your help. It's a huge relationship builder. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And this is, this is not the four-year-old version of this, right? Yeah, tell, tell your brother you're sorry. Sorry. No, no, that's not what we're talking about here, right? Okay. I'm sorry. I own this. And not only wrong, but man, I hurt you. Man, I didn't intend to. I, that was the effect. I'm sorry. One more. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Humility recognizes the offense, recognizes the debt that I've incurred. I need you to forgive me. Would you forgive me? All right. Now, some of you are like, really serious on this right now it's weighing so i'm just gonna have you practice with me okay i know this is first grade but practice with me all right i guarantee you the roof will not cave in all right did it in the first service right some of them hadn't hadn't said these words in decades so trust me all right so humor me would you say these words with me out loud let's just do it first phrase i was Good. Okay. I need your help. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Wow. That's not so hard, is it? But it's huge. It's huge. In the relationships of your life. To have the humility to voice authentically those expressions when they're appropriate. There's a sympathy, there's a commitment, there's a compassion, there's a humility, and there's a forgiveness. A forgiveness that has to mark the relationships of our life. In verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Forgiveness is not just about the other person. 
but it also blesses us. It also enhances our life and our relationship. In the absence of forgiveness, no relationship will thrive because we hurt each other, we nick each other, we we bump up against each other. That's the nature of relationships in a sin-scarred world. And forgiveness is an essential attitude to bring to any relationship. Again, Paul reiterates these same themes, bearing with one another. And if one of you has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, and who's the standard? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's not an option. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. The love descriptors. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps no record of wrongs. Some of us keep records. Some of us keep a list. If it's not physical, it's mental. And when we need it, we know where to find it, right? And in that moment, we know where to go get that list and bring it out. Well, yeah, but you, right? Love keeps no record of wrongs and forgives as the Lord has forgiven you. You can think about three levels of living when it comes to this. We'll describe them this way. There's a satanic level. A satanic level is evil for good. And we see examples of that in, in our world where, where good seems to be repaid with, with evil. My guess is not many of us are living at that level. There's a human level, though. A human level is kind of evil for evil. You do me wrong, I do you wrong back. You hurt me, I hurt you back. And maybe a little harder. But what Peter is imploring here is what we might call a divine level of returning good for evil. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. You and I who have been forgiven so much, you and I who have been blessed so incredibly by God, that you and I are called to to bring that same attitude, that same posture to the relationships of our life. And that doesn't mean... Again, not having honest discussions. It doesn't mean saying, this is not appropriate. But it means I'm not going to hang on. I'm not going to keep that catalog and bring it out and beat you with it every now and again. I'm going to release. Shared with some of you before, and I sometimes do some premarital counseling with a couple. and It's always fun. Because you get to know the couple, and you're having them read stuff, and you take profiles, and you do these things, and, and you're walking through this, and part of you knows they're not hearing anything I'm saying. They're not, they're not believing anything they're reading, because they're just, they're in love, right? 
and they sit there on the little cross from you, and they're holding hands. <laughs> Ooh, it's so good. And so sometimes I say, you know, just, you know that book I gave you, just keep it somewhere. Like put it in a box or something where you'll kind of know where it's at. Because a couple years from now, one of you is going to say, hmm, didn't we talk about that once upon a time? Where is that book, right? And one of the word pictures that sometimes uses is bricks in a wall. And when, when you, you're in a relationship with anybody, we nick each other, we bang up against each other, we offend each other, we hurt each other, sometimes intentionally, a lot of times unintentionally. And what happens is you, you kind of put down this brick, this brick of offense. And maybe your relationship's relatively new or young or you, you're in love, all those things. It's not that big a deal. You step over it, you walk around it, you don't hardly notice it, Right? But over time, if you don't deal with those bricks through forgiveness, they begin to stack up. And both of you are adding bricks, right? And over time, it becomes a little harder to step over. Over time, you can still touch each other and talk, but it's, there's a barrier. And if it keeps happening, and you keep adding bricks, and you don't exercise genuine forgiveness, you don't address those things, or you don't just, just let them run off the back, whatever the case may be appropriate. Over time, this wall gets higher and higher and thicker and thicker, And one day this couple wakes up and says, I don't even know you. (laughs) And our communication is mainly lobbing stuff back and forth across the wall. The best advice is to keep short accounts. (laughs) Because if you wait till the wall gets really high and really thick, it takes a lot of work to tear it down. But if you can kind of process those bricks along the way, if you can forgive as Christ has forgiven you, if you can return good for evil when you've been hurt, then, then the wall stays down. The relationship grows deeper. And you are blessed. You are blessed. One more. There's forgiveness. And then we'll just call this last one maturity. Maturity. Let's continue to see what Peter writes. Verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. There is this this maturity, this attitude that says, I I want to grow. And I I want to not just grow old, but I want to grow up, 
right? And we all know that just because you're old in the Lord doesn't mean that you've grown up in the Lord, right? I mean, you can grow old in the Lord. Somebody can have been a follower of Christ for 10, 20, 30, 40 plus years and not be very mature because of the choices they've made along the way. And what Peter is employing, don't just grow old, but grow up. And when you are maturing... Certain things show up. Tame your tongue. Maturity looks like a tongue that's been tamed. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So that I begin to say, what is my language telling me? What, is, what, is, what are my words telling me? Because Jesus drew this great direct connection, Right? What comes out of my mouth, what comes off my tongue, is a revealer of what's in my heart. That's where it comes from. And taming my tongue is not so much about social skills as it is about a heart that's being shaped by God. And it shows up in the way that I use my tongue. Why is it sometimes that we're more polite, we speak more kindly to strangers than sometimes we do the people we say we love the most? Isn't that crazy? Tame your tongue, which starts on the inside. But maturity looks like replacing evil with good. Replacing evil with good. Let him turn away from evil and do good. That, that in a world that, that is going every other way, I'm going to continue to come back and say, God, help me to walk in your way. Help me to, to walk in alignment with, with your design for my life. God, even when, when evil comes my way, help me to respond with good. So I'm going to replace evil with good. And then he talks about pursue peace. Pursue peace. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, an important distinction here, peacekeeping is not the same as pursuing peace. Sometimes peacekeeping looks like, I, I just don't want to, to, to rock the boat. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I just don't want to make any waves. I, I just want to, like, keep the peace. I just want to get through Thanksgiving with our family, right? <laughs> That's not the peace that he calls us to pursue. That's a superficial peace. That's like, let's just get through this. But he's talking about a pursuit of a peace, certainly a peace with God, but a peace with others. And sometimes that means leaning into a hard conversation. Sometimes that means, you know, our relationship is so important that we're not just going to kind of sweep this under the rug. And sometimes the pursuit of peace gets a little messy on the front end, doesn't it? 
But that's the relational peace that we're called to pursue. That has understanding. That has acceptance. That speaks truth and love. That forgives. That exercises sympathy and compassion and is born on the base of commitment. We seek a real peace. One with another. When, When God reached out to us to offer peace with him. He did not ignore sin. He addressed it. He called us to turn from it. And that's the peace that we are to pursue. And then he concludes this section by talking about payoff. And we'll wrap up here as well. Two areas of payoff. The first is pretty evident our relationship with others, right? I mean, think about it. If, if you and I consistently lived out of these six attitudes, do you think it would impact positively your relationships with others? I mean, regardless of what they did or didn't do, because you can't control that. If you and I consistently operated out of sympathy, and commitment and compassion and humility and forgiveness and maturity. It would radically improve the relationships of our life. Right? But not only our relationship with God, but the payoff is also about our relationship with God. Relationship with others, relationship with God. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is looking for men and women who operate this way. And the only way I can do it, the only way you can do it is through his empowering grace and through the filling of his spirit. But when we do... It not only brings blessing to us, as he's already said in this section, it not only enhances our relationship with others, but it enhances and deepens our relationship with God. God has designed us in such a way that our relationship with him and our relationship with others are always vitally connected. And as we grow in our relationship with him, it impacts our relationship with others. And how we relate to others impacts our relationship with him. You and I, regardless of the situation you find yourself in, can choose our attitude. And that's not just a fish philosophy. (laughs) That's the word that God inspired through a fisherman. Peter who quite honestly had to learn a lot of these, didn't he? I mean, you read the Gospels, his EQ was pretty low. (laughs) But he grew. He grew, and he could choose to live differently. And so can you and I. Let me remind you of that power of choice with the words of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl, that Viennese Jew, was interned by the Germans for more than three years. He was moved from concentration camp to concentration camp, spending several months at Auschwitz. And later, he wrote about his experience as he managed to survive. 
The experiences of camp life show that man does have a choice of action. There were enough examples, often of a heroic nature, which proved that apathy could be overcome, irritability suppressed. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom in independence of mind, even in such terrible conditions of psychic and physical distress. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. If you can choose that in a concentration camp, I think by God's empowering grace, you and I can choose the attitudes of our life that we bring to the relationships of our life. Let's go to him together in prayer, please. Oh, Father, Lord, as we think about these attitudes and attributes, they're a little overwhelming. Immediately, at least my mind goes to the ways that I fall short. And yet, Father, we also find you exhibit every one of these to us. That Christ, Jesus, fleshed these out as he came to dwell among us. And it is your spirit that lives within every follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, by your grace, by your spirit, we have the capacity to live your way, even in the most difficult relationships of our life. And so, Father, we just come before you this morning. And we ask you to teach us how to live. Empower us to live your way. Empower us to choose the attitudes we bring to the relationships of our life. And I'm just going to invite you to take a few moments to sit before the Lord and